Good morning, church. Good to be here with you. We don't always, but I, I want to pray with you uh, just for this message this morning. There are times when a, a, a bit of Scripture challenges us in subtle ways that, that plants a rock in our shoe in a way that's uncomfortable, that we have to walk out and live with the rock in our shoe for a while. This morning's message is a little bit like a rock in our shoe. So I need to pray that together we can come around this message and accept a challenge from Jesus in regards to the kind of church we're going to be. So if you will, bow your heads with me. God is petrifying. It's petrifying at times to come into your word and understand what is being written. Father, I pray that all of us will have focused hearts and minds this morning. Enough so that we can leave challenged. Not just to know that a challenge has been given to us. But enough that we will accept the challenge of being your church. I pray, Father, that if we find ourselves comfortable this morning, and we find the challenge afflicts us, that we will rise to the occasion and be faithful even in affliction. Lead us all this morning to be your church. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, almost seven, I think, because we had sensed a moving on our lives uh, from the Lord, an opportunity became available at Nebraska Christian College. Our family was, at the time, located in western Illinois. We were satisfied and happy, content. We were leading a church there and enjoyed the people, much beloved. And we decided that we were going to move at the Lord's leading to Nebraska Christian College to accept a, an opportunity for ministry there with students and faculty and people in our community. And for the last seven years, that's, that's where we have been. Now, you can imagine it was tough. Every move is tough. There's always logistics that you don't quite think about. But it wasn't the logistics, maybe, that was the most difficult part. You see, uh, from the time that Jolyn and I had gotten married... I had been on staff at a local church. I mean, going to church was never a question. We always knew that we were going to go to church somewhere, someplace. Every Sunday, we were going to go to church. But up until that point, we always knew where we were going to go to church because I was the preacher there. It's easy to know where you're going to go to church when you work there. And so for the very first time in our whole lives, we found ourselves trying to figure out, well, where in the world do we go to church? I mean, you can imagine, we wanted what everybody else wants. 
I wanted to go to a good church. Do you want to go to a good church? Yeah, the, the jury's still out. Okay. <laughs> you want to go to a, a good church. And so we found ourselves asking this, this great big question that we had never had to face before in our whole lives. Well, what in the world is a good church? I mean, what does a good church look like? What does it act like? What does it do? I mean... Think about it. Is, is the good church the one with the coffee bar out in the front that serves Starbucks coffee? I mean, yeah. <laughs> is there a, a barista there saying, I would like foamed milk in mine, please? I mean, is, is the good church the one with the best donuts? I mean, is the good church, is, is the, good church the one where I walk in and the seats fit me rather nicely? I mean, is the good church the one where, where the music moves me more than any other church? Where they're singing and, and the band is pretty rocking and, and I, can, I can just feel Jesus close to me because the music is contemporary and relevant. I mean, is a good church a, a church where I know that the preacher is going to make me feel good about myself with Jesus before I leave the room? I mean, is that a good church? I mean, is a good church the church that gives a lot, that gives much? What is a good church. What does a good church look like? What is it that a good church does? Jesus is going to tell us about a good church. It's a church that he tells us that he writes a letter from heaven through the Apostle John, and it's this it's this church that only gets praise. It's a church that only gets encouragement. It's a church that Jesus only offers comfort to. It's a church that, uh, that only receives the highest rating from Jesus. And I think we could say of this church, Jesus is saying, it's a good church. It's the church... That's Smyrna. Everybody say Smyrna. You've said it. Good job. It's a church at Smyrna. In Revelation chapter 2. And what we'll find is that this good church is different than we expect. And requires more than we can imagine. Join me in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. If you need your pew Bibles, go ahead and grab them, pick them up. Page 862 in those pew Bibles. Revelation chapter 2, verse 6. Or verse 8, excuse me. 
to the angel of the church in Smyrna, writes, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. What is the good church? What does it look like? What does it do? We find rather quickly that a good church is one that has critics. A good church is one, quite frankly, that suffers. A good church is one, uh, collectively, that understands affliction. We read right away in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. He goes on, I, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are a synagogue of Satan. Afflictions, slander. This good church, this good church knows the afflictions of living faithfully for Jesus. You see, Smyrna was this rather large area. It was a city. It was a very prominent city in all of Rome. Uh, in fact, uh, there was some hard times for Smyrna, uh, but it was said of the city of Smyrna that it had died and come back to life. That this grand city uh, would now house temples to the goddess Roma. That it would house temples where the emperor was to be worshipped as God. You see, in, a, in an empire like the Roman Empire, you had to try and figure out how to unify people. And so Rome had decided uh, that they needed to unify people around itself. It was this idea that if we could get everybody to unify around Rome and what Rome stood for uh, by having them worship the emperor or the goddess Roma, that everything in the empire would go well. And so Smyrna, this grand city, this city that was said to have gone from death to life, won the bid. They got to house the temple to the emperor.
And so you would go into the temple. Everyone in the community. And you would go into the temple and the emperor was Tiberius. And there would be a bust of Tiberius himself there and you would walk by and you would light incense and you would place it on the altar of Tiberius and you would say Caesar is Lord and if you didn't say Caesar is Lord then perhaps you would throw a candle or a a coin on the altar away with the atheists Caesar is Lord. Now perhaps you think, well, what's the big deal? The big deal is if you are a Christian in the city of Smyrna, there is no other Lord than Jesus. And so there is ultimately a conflict in your own city, in your own life, that if you go to the temple, if you light the incense, if you throw the coin, then you're saying something that ultimately cannot be true. Now maybe you're still thinking, what's the big deal? It's, it's only incense. It's only a coin. What? Who cares? Maybe if you can understand the angst of how those in the city of Smyrna viewed Christians who would not light the incense, you might understand that it was about national heritage. It was about a unification of who they were as Roman citizens. You go to the football game on Friday night. You're there to see all your favorite high school students. You want to see a good football game. And and as is customary in the United States, you're standing in the stands, ready for the football game to get started. Everyone's a buzz. It's going to be a big game tonight. And you stand there and someone gets out with a microphone in the middle of the field. And begins to sing the star-spangled banner. Are you with me? All the guys take their hats off and the the flag is waving off in the distance. And you have your, your hat and your hand over your heart. And you're listening as... As our national anthem is being sung, everybody's paying attention, but there's one guy who seems to think that that he doesn't need to. He doesn't take off his hat. He doesn't cover his heart. In fact, he takes a, a small flag and he lays it out and he begins to spit on it over and over again. As the rest of you are standing at attention with your Hands over your heart. Can you imagine the kind of angst that you feel toward this person? Some of you, even thinking about this sort of thing, you begin to think, I, I would want to go and meet this man in a not-so-holy way. Right? That you have such a, a, a sense of, of loyalty, right? Right? 
to the flag, to the nation. You've, you've fought for the nation, perhaps. And so for someone to dishonor the flag like that would just about drive you over the edge. Now you know what it would have felt like for Christians not to have lit the incense, not to have thrown the coin on the altar for the emperor. It was that kind of feeling. Why won't you just um, go along with the program? You see, we find that this church in Smyrna is a church that knows affliction. And they know slander. Jesus says that that they understand slander from the Jews. You see, the Jews, the Jews were in a very unique spot in all of Rome. They, they got like a, a get-out-of-jail-free card because they were this large group of an established religion. The Romans had said to the Jews, okay, all right, we're not going to fight you anymore. And so we'll give you a pass. You don't have to go to the temple. You don't have to say Caesar is Lord. And so there was, there was this angst between the Jews and the Christians. And the Jews in Smyrna were getting at the Christians. Oh yeah? We're going to make sure that the local officials know what you're doing. Maybe it's, it's reminiscent of the book of Daniel when Daniel and his compadres are there and they're being loyal to, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there were, there were those who were more than willing to turn Daniel and his compadres in uh, for their unwillingness to bow before the image of the king. They were spreading all sorts of criticisms and untruths about this group. And there is this good church, this church that receives the praise and the encouragement and the comfort of the Lord Jesus, but they are a church that suffers, that knows affliction. I just wonder, I wonder with you if not only good churches are Good churches because they're afflicted. Maybe any church could be afflicted. Maybe it's why they are afflicted. But good churches that are afflicted because they will not compromise their commitment. You see, good churches are churches that know affliction because they are uncompromising in their faith. Good churches are churches that require much. Uh, maybe you caught it there in the passage. It's in verse 10. He says, verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. You see, the likelihood is that this church is poor that they are economically in poverty uh, because they refuse to compromise their relationship with Jesus. They refuse to say, Caesar is Lord. They refuse to compromise any other part of their life. Verse 
So people stop going to their store. People stop buying their products. People stop hiring them because they're Christians. Because they haven't bowed the knee to Caesar. Do you remember that guy I told you about? The national anthem guy? What if that was... What if... What if the the roles were reversed? Would you give that guy a job? Would you buy his products? You see, the Christians be, become known like that, and so no one wants to give them a job. No one wants to buy their products, and they are poor. They know the affliction because they live without compromise. I began to think this week, well, what in the world do we have to compromise, right? I mean, surely there's nothing in our world uh, that we could compromise our faith with, right? Let's say that you have a really nice yard. It's a beautiful yard. Everybody knows that it's a beautiful yard. You keep it well kept. You mow it regularly. It's green. It's wonderful. Uh, maybe, maybe you have a piece of property out in the hills and, it, and you have the tree that when the sun goes down and it just silhouettes so beautifully and your whole family is there one day. Now, much of your family perhaps is far from Jesus and you have your niece and she comes up to you. Far from Jesus. In fact, she, she is entirely committed herself to the Mormon church. You love her. You want to have this opportunity to engage her for Jesus. And she comes up to you and she says, Hey, um, I found this guy. He's fantastic. Would you let me use your yard? Would you let me use your property? I mean, you know how it is. There's this sunset and, and it goes down and it's just beautiful. Would you let me use your property so that I could get married? Now keep in mind, you, you desperately want her uh, and maybe her future spouse and her family to come to know who Jesus is. And she says, I'll need a Mormon elder to do my wedding. And you have this choice, don't you? What will you do? We recognize that the good church is a church that is uncompromising in its convictions to be faithful to Jesus. And in that moment you think, I don't know, this feels a little bit like throwing the coin on the altar, like lighting incense and saying, Brigham Young is Lord. Maybe it's not that. Maybe, maybe it's that you have a $100,000 opportunity. That over the next couple of years, you, you will have a pay increase of $100,000, but it's going to require of you to light the candle 
to throw the coin, to light up the incense. Because you are going to be taken out entirely from anything to do with the rest of the community of the church. And you have to make this incredible decision. Will I compromise for $100,000? Maybe you're a student. You're a student who, who wants to be liked. Not only do you want to be liked, we, we all want to be liked and maybe even popular at some level. But in order to be popular and liked, you have to dress a certain way. You have to have shorts that are far too short. You have to have clothing that's far too revealing. Maybe it is that when you're in the locker room, in order to be popular, you have to speak a certain way. You have to say certain words in a certain way. You have to tell jokes, some of which are more than questionable. You have to talk about people of the opposite sex in a certain way and make other people laugh about it. And in all of it, you have a choice. Will I compromise my commitment so that I might be popular, so I might be liked, so I might be loved? A good church, a good church, is one that doesn't just simply know comfort, but knows affliction because they don't compromise their faith. Now, how is it? How is it that as a Christian we handle the affliction? How is it that we can possibly come to those decisions over and over and over again and, and not compromise and live co committed and faithful uh, to Jesus. A good church, a good church is one where Jesus shows grace. Where Jesus shows grace in the midst of the suffering. A good church is one that has a perspective of heaven. In verse 10, Jesus gives this call to those who are in this good church. He says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Isn't that just like Jesus? When you're most afraid... He says, don't be afraid. Have you noticed this throughout Scripture? Uh, I mean, there is Moses before the burning bush, and he's terrified. Uh, don't be afraid. There's the disciples in a boat, and, and, and it says that there's all sorts of things happening in this boat. They're going to be swamped. 
And here comes Jesus walking on the water. And he says, don't, don't be afraid. Joseph has an angel come and visit him. And he falls before God on his face. Don't be afraid. You're going to suffer many things. You're going to know affliction because of your lack of compromise. Don't be afraid. He says, not to be afraid of what you're about to suffer. He says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. How is it that we're not supposed to be afraid? How is it that we're not supposed to be absolutely terrified? He said in the opening, These are the words of him who was the first and the last, who died and came to life again. You see, Jesus points to himself. He says, hey, I, I get it. I know the kind of suffering that you are about to endure, but hang with me. Because if you can believe in me in the resurrection of Jesus... The resurrection that I encountered, that I came from death to life. Just, just hang with me. Don't be afraid uh, because I am in control. You see, some would say uh, this 10-day period that he talks about, some of you are going to be tested and you will suffer for 10 days. Uh, some will say uh, of this 10 days that it's 10 literal days that... Uh, from the time you were tried to the time that you were executed in Rome, it would be about 10 days. So you need to hang in there at least that long. Uh, you need not to compromise the gospel and your faith in Jesus. Uh, and at the end of 10 days, hey, it's all going to go really well with you because you're going to find yourself with Jesus. Others would say that this 10-day period is more of a, a figurative understanding and that what is taking place is, is, is God saying, hey, for a limited amount of time, you're going to have to suffer, so hang in there because I got your back. But either way, he's saying, don't be afraid because I have something in store for you. You see, God is offering grace to those who will readily commit themselves to Him and be willing to suffer affliction. But those aren't the only words. This isn't just... The only way is not just that we not be afraid. Notice what else he says. He says, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful. When you have the $100,000 opportunity, he says, be faithful. Even if it were to cost you your life, be, be faithful. When you desperately want to be liked by all of your friends and, and there's a compromise sitting right out in front of you because of your language or your jokes or your, or your dress, be faithful. Even, even to the point of losing all of your friends, uh, be faithful and I, I will give you the crown of life. When you say no, I will not allow that wedding to be held here uh, by a Mormon elder 
marrying you. I, I couldn't stand for it. I love you, but, but that would mean I would compromise my belief in who Jesus is. Maybe you would lose or be shunned by all of your family, but you would be faithful. I remember many years ago now, I was in a seminary classroom. The professor's name was Bob Ray, and we were studying a portion of, of, of church history where there was a lot of people uh, who were being murdered because of their faith in Jesus. They were coming to these, these points in life where they were either going to renounce who Jesus was, or they were going to say, I don't believe in Jesus, I renounce the church and live, or they were going to say, I will not and die. And I remember him looking at all of us in the classroom like I'm looking at you now and saying, if we were suddenly invaded by an Islamic nation and someone were to come to your door, knife in hand, and say, renounce Christ or die, what would you say? Of course, all of us in the room, oh, absolutely, renounce, uh, you know, we will not renounce Christ. Die. And then I remember him saying, okay, and if someone comes to your home, knife in hand, says, renounce Christ or your wife will die. She's with me. She's going to be in heaven. I will not renounce Christ. He said, someone comes into your home and says, renounce Christ, compromise your faith, or your children will die. I took a deep breath. I will not renounce Christ. Now, maybe not in our lifetime, maybe not in the next thousand years, will you and I have the opportunity to have someone come to our door with a knife or a gun in hand and say, renounce Christ? But in every other area, are there compromises you are making so that you make yourself comfortable? You see, the crazy part about this church is that Jesus seems to be comforting the afflicted. But He seems to be afflicting the comfortable. What is a good church? A good church is one where much is required. 
So may it be said of Whiting Christian Church that we give much, that we have worship and preaching and great facilities, but that we are not a good church just because we give much but because much is required of those who are the church of Whiting. That we will accept the affliction of committing our lives to Jesus. Much is given, but much is required. Pray with me. Lord, by the silence in the room, this is a hard teaching. Lord, will will you point out the places where we are comfortable? And help us to ask the question, am I compromising? Lord, I pray that we will become and be a good church. And Lord, that we will accept the critics that come when we commit when we live with an uncompromising spirit. Lord, challenge us to a life where much is required. And give us the grace and the strength to live it out. I pray that we will be a good church. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Gang, I realize this is a tough one. Tough teaching. And so there might be some of you who are sitting in your seats and and you've said, man, my life as a Christian maybe doesn't know the kind of affliction that you're talking about, that perhaps there are some areas of compromise in your own life where you have begun to say, hey, I, man, I need, to, I need to accept a life without compromise, and it's going to mean some affliction. And if that's you, and, and you want to talk about it, and you want to pray through it, then let's, let's do that. Let's do it together. And maybe you're sitting there going, I don't know Jesus, but I I want the kind of life that that holds the bar up here. I want the kind of bar that, that Jesus is asking me to jump toward. And I'm willing to take the leap and set my life in His hands, even if it means affliction. 
then I want you to come and be a part of a life of a good church. Let's stand together and sing.